the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Another violent racist attack on African Americans has us sad, angry, and determined to end white supremacy and its effect on all of our lives. But what are we willing to do? What are we supposed to do? And how do we disrupt the norms that produce these attacks, this violence, this racism? That's what we'll discuss next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Here we are again. It's Monday, and we've scrambled our show completely to address a violent, racist act against African Americans in our country. A white gunman wearing body armor and armed with an assault rifle drove miles from his home to a black neighborhood in Buffalo where he shot and killed 10 African-American people and wounded three others. He attacked people who were shopping at a grocery store, a store that had been opened to help bridge the gap in fresh food access that many black neighborhoods experience. A lot of the victims were senior citizens, presumably people who were taking advantage of that access to fresh food. The shooter was really clear about his intentions as well. In a 180-page screed, he railed against the browning of America, which he describes as an effort to, quote, replace the country's white majority. In this screed, he touched on nearly every racist trope you can imagine and threw in, for good measure, that he had chosen a gun for his attack because weapons are plentiful, easy to get in this country, and effective. Effective. Indeed, since 2011, this great replacement theory, this idea that changing demographics are an attack on the nation's white majority has been the explicit motivation for more than 160 murders. It has gained so much relevance that it is used on the political right as an organizing tool. Now, inherent in this theory is, of course, the insidious and persistent idea in American history that the lives of black people have less value than the lives of their white counterparts. It's white supremacy. And it connects to every other dimension of American life that's under the boot heel of white supremacy. Think about the racial inequality we see in every societal measure. Think of the consistent killing of unarmed African-Americans by police. This is America. This is how we live. And I'm tired of emoting about this. And frankly, every emotion I feel right now seems really inadequate. To the challenge I think we face. So instead, I find myself thinking very specifically about all this and thinking about specifically what it will take, what kind of disruption will be necessary to make these kind of things less common, 
or non-existent. When you think about it, it is, after all, comfort. Comfort for most of white America with these incidents that permits them to continue and grows more white supremacist killers. And when I say comfort, I mean that in literal terms. There are too many lives, especially those of white Americans, that are really distanced from the consequences of white supremacy and acts like this. It's not happening in their neighborhoods. It's not happening to their children. It's not happening to their parents. It's not happening in the middle of their lives, grocery stores, churches. And even among white Americans of good faith, people who don't embrace any part of white supremacy in their hearts, the fact that this doesn't play out in their lives means it's easy to decry these violent racist attacks, but not think about or change the dynamics or the behaviors that produce them. White comfort is the power behind white supremacy. And white comfort is the barrier, or at least one of the biggest barriers, to racial progress. Even the racial progress that white Americans of good faith believe is possible and necessary. So how do we change that? What do we do? And what are we willing to do or even to contemplate that would disrupt the status quo in a way that would produce less of all of this? That would produce more justice and more equality. That's the idea I want to start with today. And I want us to build a really important conversation around what we're willing to do, what kind of disruption do we need to indulge to take white America out of its place of comfort with these things. A little later in the show, we're going to talk with two local commentators about their thoughts on all of these things. But up first, I'm joined by Dr. Rashawn Ray, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland College Park. Uh, Dr. Ray, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, as always, for having me. Uh, I really enjoy coming on with you and always find it unfortunate that we talk about these particular incidents when we interact. Yeah, right. We got we to gotta find a happier way to have you on the show at some point. Um, I, I do want to get to this question that I'm asking about the sphere of white comfort that I think surrounds American life and gets in the way of the real solution making that uh, I think we need to to in, endeavor upon in this country. But I, I first want to just give you a chance to react to what happened in Buffalo, like I said, I'm tired of emoting about this, but I think that we all do have really powerful emotions when we see these things happen. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, media and political pundits keep proclaiming that we, the United States of America, is some kind of way better than this. History, unfortunately, tells us maybe we're not. And attacks on black Americans have existed on indigenous land since before anyone was even called an American. And we know that the killer not only wrote the N-word on his gun, but he also wrote the number 14, which was alluding to 1488, which is a white supremacist slogan, not only as giving hail to Hitler in the letter H in the alphabet, but this white supremacist slogan in the number 14 is important for people, which states, quote, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. This 
slogan fully embraces replacement theory, which is the ideological assumption that white people will eventually go extinct or at least lose economic and political power. And the way that I think about it is it's clear that a growing group of white people, not just in the United States, but also in Europe and other parts of the world that are experiencing group threats um, in regards to their power in the racial hierarchy. And I, I think President Lyndon B. Johnson said it best. He said, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. He'll give you somebody to look down on, and he'll empty his pockets for you. This is the ideology that we must address. Mm. So I I do want to get to this question of white comfort and first define the role that it plays, what it looks like, and – how we how we shake that up um you know I, for about a decade i have had these really specific thoughts about the role that white comfort plays in the modern uh, debate over over equality and and racism and 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 things like that and how it's similar to Things that we saw in the 1960s uh, and that black leaders decried. Uh, Martin Luther King, I think, uh, spoke really eloquently about about the danger of of white comfort. Um, but I think it's time to really go back to that space, and and that is the thing that that is in our way here. Um, everyone just waits for the next one of these to happen, and there is no disruption to our lives, uh, um, to so many people's lives, uh, that would compel us to think of something different. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, look, when you talk about white comfort, we have to put it in a historical and a current context. I think white comfort has to be linked and extended to institutional comfort. See, a lot of white people in America are comfortable because the social institutions that govern over us allow for their lives to be structurally different than others. You mentioned MLK. Of course, what you were alluding to is MLK's letters from a Birmingham jail Mm -hmm. where he talked about the white moderate, and he stated that I'm not as as fearful or I'm not, I don't have as much disdain for the KKK and the the white Klansmen as I do the white moderate that sits around and watch these things happen. And accordingly, of course, one of the other things that MLK talked about is that Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. And no matter if you're talking about 1968 or 2022, that is still the case today. We also know that our neighborhoods, and accordingly then our schools linked to those neighborhoods, are just as segregated today as they were nearly 50 years ago. So when we talk about white comfort, it is about institutional comfort. It is about the institutions that govern over us, our places of worship, our neighborhoods, the schools that our kids go to, their friendship networks. And so part of that, that white comfort exists because what happened in Buffalo, of course, Buffalo is a highly segregated city, like whether we're talking about Detroit or Washington, D.C. or St. Louis or Memphis and Atlanta, the list could go on and on, that accordingly what happened on that side of town at that grocery store left the other side of town unencumbered. It allowed for the comfort to continue on. And until white people start viewing what happened on that side of town as something that not only could happen to their side of town, but also something they should care about because those people on the other side of town are human beings, we will continue to keep having these same sort of conversations because it is clear that nothing is going to be done about it. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with uh, Dr. Rayshon Ray. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and professor of sociology at the University of Maryland College Park. We're talking about the shooting, the mass shooting in Buffalo uh, over the weekend, uh, a white supremacist young man um, got a, an automatic weapon and uh, went to a black neighborhood and shot and killed 10 people in a grocery store, uh, wounded three others. Uh, we're talking not just about the reaction to yet another of the instances of uh, violent white supremacy in America but what it will take to disrupt the comfort that so many white Americans feel uh, that uh, that stands in the way of the kinds of changes that need to be made. Um, yes, this is sad. Yes, this is making me very angry. 
um, just thinking about what this young man did. But I also today thinking about what kinds of responses will disrupt this. Uh, so many things have happened uh, over the, the history of America, supposedly, to stop this kind of thing from happening. And, and yet here we are in 2022 talking yet again about the ways in which white supremacy threatens the lives of black America. What do we need to do to make white Americans, more white Americans, feel compelled to indulge change? We want to hear from you as well. Uh, how are you dealing with this shooting? Uh, does it feel different from other shootings or is this uh, same old, same old to you? Uh, give us your thoughts also on this great replacement theory, this idea that the browning of America that's taking place, the change in demographics, is a threat to uh, white Americans, that it is a effort to replace the majority here uh, with a different ethnic background. And especially, uh, give us a call and tell us what you make of what I'm calling white comfort, um, the uh, ability of so many white Americans to, even if they despise white supremacy, not make changes in their lives or in the dynamics around their lives in order to, to make things like this happen less frequently or not at all. What do we do to disrupt that sense of comfort? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Ray, before we get to our callers and uh, social media, uh, I, I, I want to have you talk specifically about the things that you think we as African Americans can do, should do, to disrupt white comfort. Now, that's a, I think uh, it, it's a pretty, that can be a very difficult subject to think about. It can be uh, a controversial subject to talk about, but I, I don't think there's a way to discuss this without thinking about that. African Americans march. African Americans elect uh, politicians to represent their interests in their cities, in their states, and in Washington. And this doesn't change. So, what should we be doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm unsure if it is our job to disrupt white comfort. I mean, as, as Bobby Seale said. We don't hate white people. We hate oppression. And I think similar to when we talk about sexism, that is oftentimes a problem and the onus should be on men to disrupt that. Similar to when we talk about racism, what we need is, is more white people to step up and be what I call racial equity advocates and racial equity brokers. Mm. I'll give a couple of quick examples. Racial equity advocates looks like, I don't know if people saw this, it went viral, an Uber driver, where uh, a couple that owns a restaurant got in the car, started using racial epithets, and he put them out of his car. Like, that is what it looks like to be a racial equity advocate, to let other white people know that I will not sit here in an only white space and tolerate racism, prejudice, and discrimination. Because, see, these segregated spaces, see, part of what your question suggests is that black people have to go into spaces that are now going to make us mentally, emotionally, and physically sick and drained because those spaces were not built for us, nor are they set up for us to be there. So what we need are for white people to be in those spaces, to be the ones to speak up and speak out when they hear and see things that are unjust. But what black people can do, we can forge ahead with laws like the, the, the second lieutenant, Richard W. Collins III law, today, at the University of Maryland, where I work, there is going to be an unveiling of the Lieutenant Collins Plaza at the University of Maryland. Five years ago, nearly to the day, Lieutenant Collins, who is a black man who was getting ready to graduate from Bowie State University, a historically black university um, across the county in Prince George's County, was murdered at the University of Maryland, which is a predominantly white institution, mm -hmm. by a white student. Five years later, we have came together to put together this plaza. What we also need to ensure is that we push for certain types of resources for law enforcement. See, this is where it gets complicated because there's been this big debate about removing resources from law enforcement in terms of reallocating funding. The way I think about it is shifting funding. Law enforcement needs more resources to be able to treat hate groups like gangs. That's important because over the past 20 years, hate groups in the United States have increased over 100%. So we have to think about how we're set up. So I think the policy part is really, really important. But the one thing we know for sure, 
Simply changing hearts and minds will not do much. It will take policy change. That is a space where black people and white people can work together. It will take structural change to change the institutional spaces that segregate us and lead to the othering process that leads to what happened in Buffalo being so accepted in our society. Mm. So uh, before I and I know you're, you're going to have to, to jump soon um, and I really appreciate you giving us the time today, but I, I, I want to put this question to you. Um, should African-Americans be disrupting more than we do? Should we be in some way trying to make it clear to white America that if we're going to live this way, we're all going to live this way. And I don't mean, I don't mean indulging violence. Of course, I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about disrupting the status quo in a way uh, for white Americans that feels the same as the way it's disrupted for us. Now, of course, uh, black Americans, we're not a majority. We don't have the kind of power that would really, I think, uh, reach into white life the way we might like to. But I'm thinking back to the 60s when you did have far more, um, far more radical elements uh, in, the, in the civil rights movement that were pushing for that kind of disruption and sometimes uh, achieving it. Do we need to go back to, do we need to go back to more of that? Well, you know, I think one of the things that activists might say is over the past two years, particularly since George Floyd, but even going back to Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland and, 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 and a list of others, that this has been the moment in which we have seen the most political protest. I mean, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter protest after George Floyd superseded the Women's March. Mm-hmm. So people are like, we have came out and what we were told to do was to rally people to vote in this regard to put Democrats in office. Guess what? We did that. We flipped Georgia. We put Biden in the White House. We got the Senate tiebreaker. And guess what? We haven't got police reform. We haven't got voting rights. Reparations isn't even really on the table in the way that it's supposed to be. So here it is. Once again, we did what we were supposed to do. And other people did not do what they were supposed to do. And one thing I know is that black people are sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so we have a generation of people, young and old, who have came out, who did what they were supposed to do, who continue to do what they were supposed to do. And we have people every single day who walk into the lion's den being one of the only, the only black person, the only black woman, the only black man in their spaces. That is their protest oftentimes every single day to walk into the fire into a space that they know was not set up for them and research documents that it messes with their mental, emotional, and physical health. And so I think part of it, again, gets back to who the onus is on, and the, the initial question you posed is so powerful about white comfort. And to me, it just keeps going back to not only that Lyndon B. Johnson quote, but also that MLK quote. And we have to remember, those quotes were basically almost said around the same point in time, because they speak to two different sides of a continuum that both matter to come together to keep society inequitable. So we need these racial equity advocates. We need racial equity brokers to ask a question like, hmm, why don't any non-white people live in my area? Well, not it could be because people literally choose to live there. Like, we do have to remember that. And I think at times, uh, and, and partly talking about the uptick in hate groups and the uptick in hate crimes is important because I think we always view progress as being linear, meaning if we just keep going in society, things are going to get better. There was an 18-year-old man who a year ago was, according to how we think about it in the United States, was a boy, mm. who then we have to go to Dallas and see that a nine-year-old showed up at his black neighbor's door, banging on the door with the whip, telling this little nine-year-old black girl to come out of the house. And then when the father went over to the house where, where, the, where the white boy lived, the father then pulled a gun and shot at him. See, see, we have to be real that this is what we are living in right now. And as much as some of us can live in, in a setup that precludes us from experiencing a lot of that, that is not other people's reality. And, and until we get realistic that that is what's going on in 2022, that a nine-year-old can take a whip, and that nine-year-old then grows up to be like the young man who went to that Buffalo grocery store and shot up and killed 10 people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Dr. Rayshon Ray, always great to talk with you here on uh, Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Coming up, we're going to continue this conversation about the mass shooting in Buffalo and the response that that we think is appropriate or necessary to deal with white comfort. Uh, We want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Tim in Detroit, Frank in Livonia, we will get to you. Uh, If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking, unfortunately, about yet another racist, violent attack on African-Americans who were innocently going about their lives. Uh, A young man, a young white man, uh, drove miles and miles and miles from his home to a black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York, went to a grocery store and shot and killed 10 people and wounded three others. In the screed that he wrote about why he was doing what he was doing, He echoed so many dimensions of the theories of white supremacy that power so many of the institutions in this country. And he leaned heavily on this great replacement theory, which surmises that the browning of America, the influx of immigrants from uh, countries that, uh, uh, that feature brown people, Uh, is about replacing white people here in America. This is an organizing idea for the conservative wing of our politics right now. And it's connected, of course, to lots and lots of violent incidents. What we're talking about today is not just our shock and our anger at what happened in Buffalo, but about the things, the dimensions, the dynamics that allow this to keep happening. The comfort that so many white Americans feel and enjoy because their lives aren't disrupted this way. Even white Americans of good faith, people who have no sympathy in their hearts for white supremacy, are the power behind the institutions that keep white supremacy in place. So what do we do? How do we disrupt that? And here's another question. Who's responsible for disrupting that? Is it African-Americans as a mechanism of self-defense? Or does it fall equally on the shoulders of white Americans? who ought to be compelled, ought to feel compelled to create a more just and equal society. As always, we want to hear from you, what your reaction is to what happened in Buffalo, what you think of this great replacement theory, and, of course, uh, what you think will disrupt this cycle where something like this happens We deal with the particulars of it, and then we wait for it to happen again because we know it will happen again. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. I am joined now by two more really sage voices on these matters. Uh, Greg Bowens is a political and communications consultant and a columnist with Deadline Detroit. Greg, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Karen Dumas is a communications strategist and a newly minted columnist for the Detroit News. Karen, welcome back to Detroit Hi, Today. Hi, Thank you. How are you? Yeah. So, Karen, first of all, congratulations on becoming a columnist at the Detroit News. But I I do want to 
I do want to start with you um, and give you a chance to talk about this shooting, your reactions to it, and your response to this question I'm asking about white comfort and how we disrupt that. Well, you know, Stephen, I'm like you. I've been listening to the show. Um, it's it's become normalized. I mean, like you said, it's it's going to happen again. And we cart out. We do the same things. Our responses are the same. We start talking about uh, police reform. We start talking about gun legislation. We start talking about, you know, policy. But what we're not talking about is practice and the application of those things. This is rooted. You know, we're now hearing an emergence of replacement theory. You know, the, 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 the challenge to white supremacy has been uh, a fear forever. And when I say white supremacy, I'm not just talking about those that are cloaked in a KKK uniform. Mm. White supremacy is social, it's economic, it's educational, and it's rooted in every fiber of the fabric of this country. And so when you're talking about, you know, this disturbance or disruption, People aren't going to do that because there are people that are protected by that, even if they don't participate. You know, when we, we, we start talking about white privilege, you know, even people that are out marching and maybe sympathetic toward these situations are beneficiaries of it. So how are they going to compromise those things that they stand on that protect, that feed and nurture their families for generations? They're not going to do it. Now, you know, I know this is going to be a crazy way out thing, but segregation was the one protector (laughs) that black Mm. people had. Mm. Uh, They had their own. Uh, They stayed to themselves. Uh, They did not appear to compromise, you know, um, uh, white stability. Uh, But that the country needed us economically. And so, um, you know, it's like, okay, come over here, give us your money, help us to sustain ourselves. We really don't want to be bothered with you. Someone sent me a link over the weekend, and I thought it was a joke. Um, it was a 1994 movie say, called The Aliens Come for Black People. Watch that. It's on YouTube. <laughs> it was the absolute, but there's so many truths in that, and I think it's very timely. Wow. So, so Karen, I'm going to push you on that. Are you, okay. are you saying we ought to go back? We ought to, we ought to build our own communities? And I, not worry about what I think white we, people are doing. I think doing. we yeah, ought to stop trying. You know, my post on Facebook this morning was, if it can't be fixed, it shouldn't be forced. And so I think we need to stop seeking the validation and the inclusion that we've been promised for generations and never received. Um, you know, the minute that, that, that desegregation hit, everybody's like, okay, well, I want to be included. I want to be looked at, you know, as, as equal. I want to be considered and I want to seat at the table. Well, no, what happened to the time that you build your own table? And this isn't, you know, this isn't anti anything, but, you know, we look at other races and other cultures and how they reinvest in themselves, how they support each other. I heard somebody talk about somebody they were doing business with. I mean, these were were two white gentlemen, and they talked about how they didn't like each other, but they did business together. You know, we've been taught to allow things to become personal, and, you know, that alienates us from supporting each other. Hmm. I mean, there's a very basic thread that could and should continue to hold the black community together that would kind of take us a little bit out of this this situation. But you got to remember, we're someplace we were bought, black people were bought forcibly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> we're, we're trying to carve out a space where we weren't intended to be. We were brought here as labor. And, you know, so now it's, 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 we've been promised a different ball game, but we've not been given a bat, a ball, <laughs> or told the rules <laughs> Nothing, of the game. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Karen, uh, I, I, I think that's a really powerful, powerful set of ideas. Uh, Greg Bowens, you and I have talked lots uh, because we've known each other <laughs> for 30 years <laughs> uh, about about these issues. And I don't know how many times uh, we've talked on the radio or on television or on a panel about a specific incident like this where we're reminded of uh, the white supremacy that powers so much of uh, America. So I guess I do want to get your your reaction to, to this particular incident, but then also your answer 
to my question about white comfort and the disruption of white comfort. Yeah, you know, uh, when these things happen, when the shootings first happened, one of the things that I, I thought that I had outgrown, but apparently I haven't, is this idea of, man, I hope that wasn't a brother. You know, when you first hear about mm -hmm. hear about it, and I'm, I'm reminded of what had occurred in New York and the subway, and it was a brother, and I was, you know, deeply disappointed. I didn't, I didn't take it on as, you know, my own personal shame or anything like that. At the same time, uh, it reminded me, New York did, reminded me of how far we have to go in helping people deal with, you know, mental, mental illness. And so, you know, when it became clear that in, in this situation, it was a 18 year old white man who had gone into this grocery store and shot up these folks, primarily black folks. I think only like two of the 10 or so uh, who were killed were white. Um, you know, it's here we go again. We saw Dylan Roof. We saw uh, the person that went into the Jewish synagogue and shot up people. And this 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 whole idea of, of picking up a gun and shooting people based on on fear and well, it's rooted in fear, uh, but based on, on on race is something that we really got to deal with. And I think that one of the things that we're not good at dealing with is having honest conversations um, uh, in our own lives, you know, for everybody about race now. You know, man, it trips me out that we got these DNA tests <laughs> and lots of people are doing it and everybody's finding out that they're not 100% of anything. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? We're all a <laughs> <And> mix. <laughs> we're all a mix, man. And, you know, some to, 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 to some people's dismay, you know, they're finding out that they're <laughs> not 100% of what they thought they were. And you would think that that would somehow begin to open up the door to uh, public conversations about race in a way that allows for us to move past the fantasy of 100%, you're 100% this or 100% that, and that would allow for us to begin to see each other as humanity. Uh, Karen, that movie I think you were talking about was Cosmic Slop. <laughs> no, it's called no, it, it's, it's it's called uh, the aliens come for black people, and I said, oh, "What okay. kind of foolishness is this?" <laughs> but you have to watch it. It's the, the aliens come down. They negotiate with the gut with the U.S. government for black people or those that have twenty five percent black blood. So they just want the darker skinned black people. And then you see the government officials sitting around a table discussing, you know, what would this look like? And this lady says, "Well, you know, our welfare rolls would go down, and our crime." You have to watch it. It is cr it's crazy. But it, it reflects how so many people think. Mm. Ideally, we should all be able to sit in a room and learn that we are more alike than we are different. But the reality is, is that we keep getting these performative measures to think that we're getting something, um, you know, for our hurt, for our pain, for our struggle, for our investment in the in the infrastructure of this country and in reality we're getting nothing i mean even like here in detroit you know we get a street named after somebody and we're happy but what about economic opportunity i mean legitimate opportunity not just being carted out you know for in the camera shot but that happens at the national level we we want to make this political but it's personal and you cannot regulate or legislate hate in a person's heart. Mm. So, so well, Greg, you can, I wanna... you can you can regulate and legislate behavior. You can, and we and that's that's really if, that's really but important. No, we can't because you know why? This guy had already had some documented issues with the police and mental health, but yet he was still able to go by high-powered firearms. So gun legislation doesn't work either. And I don't want to hear about this kid having mental issues and all of that stuff. Every, you know, this is another part of it. He was, what did they say? He, we, we encouraged him to surrender. Do you think that if this guy had been black, would he, yeah. would he have, I mean, they took Dylan Roof to Burger King. I mean, think about that. So that also validates these acts that it's okay. He needs help. Black people that, that do things are criminals. White people that do things need help. 
I mean, come well, on. I mean, that's 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 a that's a sweeping generalization. Karen. So, we just so, talked about so great, the guy on the, on the subway, and he was he was captured, you know, I'm without not, being killed. So, Greg, hang on, hang on, Greg. I I do want to push you on this this question though of yes. disruption and disrupting white comfort. Is, how do we do that? How how do we make it so that more Americans feel compelled to embrace change? when something like this happens because they feel like it's it has an effect on their lives. Well, the 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 that the hard part is is taking it from the macro sort of level and bringing it down to the micro level mm. in terms of how me, you, Karen and everybody listening to this program behave in our own lives, taking on a willingness to get outside of our own comfort zones uh, in confronting ways which promulgate, advance racist ideology in our lives. You know, uh, I, I find it really interesting that we are able to, you know, kind of sit back and look at 30,000 feet and talk about, you know, uh, being able to change laws and stuff like that. At the same time, we can be reluctant to address everyday issues of racism in our own life, uh, confronting stereotypes, uh, accepting the idea of white replacement theory as almost like common sense. You know, yeah, if you let a bunch of people come across the border, of course they're going to grow and of course they're going to do things uh, to replace us. They're just, just the sheer numbers. And some people think that this is part of the idea behind getting rid of uh, Roe versus Wade. And, uh, and 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 so that you can increase the number of white people, uh, in particular, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. having children, whether the women want to or not. And so uh, we we I, I think that we don't confront them. We we allow uh, uh, for other people to take on the issue, and it can be hard. It can be hard. You could be at work talking to a boss or talking to a colleague or even in a business meeting. You know, you want to get the contract, you want to do the deal, but you know this person is kind of funny and kind of shady in relationship <laughs> to the way that they talk about other people mm -hmm. and you don't confront them on it. You don't say anything about it. And that's just sort of the way that it is. And so I, I do believe that uh, if we want to make people uncomfortable, if we want to make white people uncomfortable, then we, we, me, you, everybody else, need to be willing to be uncomfortable as well mm. in our daily lives. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this really great conversation about what happened in Buffalo and what the response should be. I want to get to the phones when we come back. 313-577-1019, Raymond in Ypsilanti, Frank in Livonia, James in Detroit. We'll get to you. If you want to join us on social media, you can as well, Facebook and Twitter. We'll be right back more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guests are Greg Bowens and Karen Dumas. We're talking about the shooting in a Baltimore, or I'm sorry, a Buffalo a grocery store over the weekend, a white supremacist attack uh, by a young man with a semi-automatic weapon uh, who said that uh, he was fighting back against the browning of America, this idea that uh, uh, white people are being replaced by immigrants uh, who come from other countries. As always, uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation about your reaction to that shooting, but also about the question of what we do and how we disrupt the institutions of white supremacy that power incidents like this. Um, as always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there. Uh, let's start with Raymond in Ypsilanti. Raymond, welcome yes, to the show. Go ahead. Me. Hey, yep, go ahead. Well, I mean, this one terrible incident over in, in uh, New York is, is terrible, but the bottom line is the, the money does not flow into the black community. It's almost, you know, like it was slavery back in time before Lincoln. And the issue is that, among other things, we have to, especially in Michigan, get more realistic jobs 
available for everybody, especially African-Americans who are still down the bottom. And also in terms of education, I mean, uh, things aren't happening. We're not growing in areas where we should be growing so that we can compete better with the entire community. It's really sad that we had a circumstance over in uh, Buffalo, but the issue is the main problem is the lack of money, the lack of uh, good education Mm -hmm. and affordable education uh, as for the entire community of the Af- uh, the entire African American community, those mm-hmm. are steps that we need to take and put money on so that we can develop the entire uh, community mm-hmm. and also the whole community. Yeah, if, if, if blacks become more efficient, so does our entire country. Yeah, uh, Raymond, uh, I really appreciate the call and uh, and your perspective. Karen, you were talking earlier about. Um, how different things were when America was segregated. Uh, Raymond's not suggesting that, but he is, I think, suggesting an, an internalization of some of these questions that I, that I think you're also talking about here. Yes, and I'm not even talking about, you know, you live in a red line. You know, we, we, we talk about redlining. I'm not talking about physical or geographic segregation. I'm talking about a recommitment to excellence for and by your own, the same way other people do. You know, we sit up and, and say, well, why do they get that? How do they do that? You know, okay, we spend more money. We have more resources. But how are they used? How are they applied? Why do we keep expecting same things from elected officials? What kinds of things can we do for ourselves and by ourselves? Sometimes it's just as simple as, as maintaining a level of respect for those that look like you. And again, this isn't against anybody else, but it's it's a reinvestment, a reaffirmation, a recommitment to self. I mean, and it's real it's real simple, you know, and it's and it starts with with some basic things. Okay, I, there's a car wash that that's that's owned by a black couple. Yeah, I got to drive a little bit out of the way, but I'm going to go to that car wash. Mm-hmm. Now, that car wash is committed to giving me an excellent car wash for my money, not just, you know, because oh you you're going to patronize me because I'm a black business. They're committed to giving me, you know, a good car wash. So, there's a cycle. You know, the gentleman that called said it's about the money. No, we got endless amounts of money that are being invested. That money is just not being applied. We've been convinced that money solves problems, but it does not. We have to apply that money in the right way. It has to be managed. And then there's some things that we need to do. We don't even have a value of education the way we used to. When people migrated here from the South, you know, a lot of parents or grandparents didn't have much education, but they had a value of it and they instilled that in their children. Now, school is just like a daycare center for too many people. We don't, and this isn't for everybody. So, Greg, this isn't a sweeping thing, but I'm saying that we have to you know, look at what we need to do in order to do what we want to do and be who we are capable of becoming. Mm. Uh, Greg? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always, I'm a little troubled. You know, I, I love Karen and I, I, and I appreciate everything that, you know, that you do and that you say. And, you know, I'm, I, I gotta say this though, it's the very language that we use that allows for this hierarchy of race to persist. And the idea that if we are unwilling, all of us, to confront racism as it exists in our lives, then that allows for people who are comfortable with their own racist beliefs to do their thing. For example, you know, I was struck by, you know, the furor that went on about uh, this funeral of the uh, Palestinian woman that was mm-hmm. killed by, you know, in over there in the Middle East and, and the Israelis disrupting this, this funeral procession and stuff like that. And I could not help think, because I ask this question a lot of my Arab brothers and sisters, what about the Black Palestinians? What about the Black people who are Arabic? When we talk about Muslims, we always think of Muslims, and because of our stereotypical way of thinking, the way that we stereotype people, we automatically go to Middle Eastern and Arabic. But we know that there are white Muslims. We know that there are Black Muslims. And yet we are victims. We are victims of a racist society that only allows for us to think of Muslims as Arabic people and deal with them in that kind of way. I could go on, but that's a perfect example to me of how this we, when we talk, is, a, is more of a separation thing than a together thing. There is 
Karen, you love to say, and I agree with you, that we do have big common ground, mm. you know, with everybody, but we don't act like it. Yeah. And we don't act like it when we go to a store. We don't act like it when we go to a party. We don't even act like it, act like it when our kids are dating. There are many people who are uncomfortable with the thought that uh, that if their kid dates someone who is of a different skin color, that that is a bad thing that they don't want to see. Now, as black folks in particular, we are able to, you know, notice it when it comes to white people and, and, and that kind of thing. But we are reluctant to address it in our own lives. And we are not going to disrupt white people and the way that they think if we are not willing to challenge our own beliefs and then and well, take that to them mm-hmm. at the same well, time. Think, think, about, so, think about this when you talk about the replacement theory and, and, and a growing fear. Everybody takes it back to Donald Trump and, you know, they talk all, you know, the right wing. But think about this. When you're watching television right now, think about how many interracial couples you see on television. Karen, I've got about 25 seconds. So you're I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. No. That, that's, that's a subliminal, you know, fear that's being placed in people like, oh, my God, they're taking our jobs, they're taking our women, they're taking our everything. So, I mean, that there there's something behind that, too, and I just don't know what. Yeah, yeah. As always, Greg and Karen, it's wonderful to talk to you guys about these things. It's sad that we have to do it during uh, during incidents like this but uh, i really appreciate both of you coming on to uh, thanks steven appreciate yeah it. thanks steven yeah. you're the man okay that is going to do it for us today come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with michigan experts about the whitmer administration's new climate goals and the possibilities for us actually reaching them this is 1019 wdetfm detroit's npr station your connection to news music and conversation we'll talk again tomorrow